Father, we bow here in your presence. We thank you again for this day, this service, these people that have come to be with us today, Father, and to worship you. I just want to lift them up and pray for their needs and their problems and their requests. And Lord, I pray that everything that has been said and done today would honor and glorify you. Now open up your word to us, speak to our hearts through that word, and change our lives forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you all to be seated. I want to begin by asking you this question. The question is this. Do you think that ambition is good or bad? Is ambition good or bad? Think about this. If you were hiring somebody to work in your company, who would you look for? Would you look for somebody that was ambitious? If you were teaching your child about life, would you teach them to set goals and have dreams and make sacrifices and work hard? Well, that's ambition. The definition of ambition goes something like this. It's a strong desire to do or to achieve something, typically requiring determination and hard work. Sounds pretty good to me, doesn't it, to you? That ambition may be a good thing. <clears throat> that it's something that we as human beings should seek to, to do or to be like, I guess. Then you come across this verse. Now let me read the verse to you. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Um, so what does that verse say? Is that verse telling us that we should not be ambitious? Well, at first glance you might think so, but there's this one little word there, selfish, that sort of changes the meaning. You see, selfish ambition, vain conceit, I guess, would it be quite different than just ambition in general. It's not talking about working hard or sacrificing or setting goals. It's talking about something else. Let me give you some of the characteristics of what selfish ambition is. Number one would be this, that it's the me first attitude, that I'm the most important person in the world, or in this room at least, and I'm the only one that counts. Another characteristic would be this, that I will use and abuse anybody to get what I want. That's a typical uh, characteristic of what ambition or selfish ambition would be like. A third characteristic would be that I don't care about the consequences because they don't really apply to me. If you were to put all these together, you'd have an image or a picture of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about selfish ambition. Now, let me give you a couple of examples that have been in the news the past couple of weeks. First of all, you could look at any politician in Washington, and you're going to have to probably conclude that there's a lot of selfish ambition in Washington, and I think that goes without saying. But there have been two examples in the news this past week. First of all was this young man, Jesse Smollett, that uh, was the, the TV star of the, of the series Empire. And I don't know all the details. Nobody does. We'll see, you know, you're assumed innocent until proven guilty. But he's been arrested and charged with a lot of crimes here because he hired somebody to beat him up or to at least make it look like it and to blame it on white Trump voters. And um, it's just been a mess. He's been caught in it. His friends that beat him up turned on him and have told the police all about it. And when investigating, they asked these guys the question, why did he do it? And basically it was for publicity. Publicity because in his field of acting, he had sort of, his popularity had sort of waned and he thought this would get him back in the limelight. So he did this. And now he's facing all kinds of crimes. But that is a perfect example of what I mean by selfish 
ambition. You're willing to walk over people, do whatever it takes, because the consequences are irrelevant. They don't really apply to you. Now, there's another example that's been in the news this past week, and that is about the college mothers who have paid off people to take tests or change test scores for their children so they can get into USC. And they have uh, rigged uh, their applications and so forth. It's just a mess. And this thing is going to get bigger, and, in, and it's going to involve a lot more people by the time it's all over. But again, the perfect thing, uh, example of what we're talking about when we talk about selfish ambition that you're the most important person, you'll walk over anybody to get what you want, and the consequences don't apply to you. And this is the definition of what we mean by selfish ambition. Now, the problem is this, that believers are not immune to this by any means, because we as as human beings struggle with selfish ambition. And at any given time, you take a good hard look at yourself, and you're going to see these characteristics in your own life. And some of the things that we do and some of the ways in which we behave, we have to acknowledge and be honest about it, that we're struggling sometimes with selfish ambition. Now, the Bible teaches that we as believers are to live lives that are the exact opposite of selfish ambition. Let me read you this verse. It's the verse I just read, but I want to finish it now and put the second part to it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Now, what he's doing is showing you the the two things here. Don't be this way with selfish ambition like we've just described, this vain conceit. But rather do this. Be humble and value others above yourselves. Serve other people is what he's talking about. So there's the two um, choices that we make. Now, when it comes to selfish ambition, there's something we need to realize about this because selfish ambition always hurts other people. In both of the situations that I've given you, other people have been terribly hurt through this. Uh, our country is being hurt by politicians who are um, determined to get their own way and to do what's best for them. People always get hurt. Now listen to this verse. Let me watch this verse. It's in James chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what James says. He says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Now notice this term selfish ambition. It's it's mentioned numerous times in the Bible. And in this particular instance, James is saying, Look, everywhere you see this, Everywhere you find this, you're going to find something else too. You're going to find disorder, I mean, chaos in, in, in the uh, relationships and so forth. But also, you're going to find every evil practice along with it. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, here, let me give you this example. We've seen from the people that I've mentioned, there has been lying, cheating, slander, stealing, And in some extreme cases, you might include murder and whatever else is necessary to get what it is that you want. Every time somebody struggles with selfish ambition, you find all kinds of evil practices because you have to. So you have to resort to that in order to get what it is that you want. And so this always hurts other people. It's never an isolated thing just with you. Other people are always involved. Now today what I want to do is this. For the next few minutes, I want to share with you from the Bible in our study in the book of Judges 
a perfect example of selfish ambition. We're going to be looking at Gideon's son, Abimelech, and the story that goes along with that. And we're going to talk about, when I've shared the story with you, we're going to talk about in the end how to guard against selfish ambition. How do you guard against it? Because as believers, we should not. We should not be that kind of people. And it does creep into the lives of believers, and we've got to be aware of that. We've got to be on guard for it. So let's look first of all at the story. Uh, Gideon has died, and now we get into the story of his sons, or one particular son in general. Let me take you first to Judges chapter 8, verses 30 and 31. Here's what it says about Gideon. He, Gideon, had 70 sons of his own. For he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Seventy sons. That's not talking about daughters. I'm sure there were daughters in there too. He has many wives. We're not told how many, but he had many wives. But he also had a mistress, a concubine, living in Shechem. Now, Gideon lives in Ophrah. This is Shechem, some distance away. And so he has a mistress there. She has a son named Abimelech. He's the point of discussion today. We jump right down to chapter 9, looking at verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says took place. Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, which is Gideon, it's another name for Gideon, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jerubal's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, now I'm your flesh and blood. Now here's what he's doing. He's gone to his mother's side of the family, living in Shechem. He says, who would you rather have control over you? These 70 sons of Gideon living over here in Ophrah, or would you rather have me? I'm your flesh and blood. Would you rather have me doing it? So they discuss it, and they agree. We would rather have you ruling over us. Now, somehow or another, since the death of Gideon, his sons have sort of risen to the, uh, the occasion, I guess, of ruling over, to some degree, the people of Israel. Um, he offers them this alternative. Let me do it. I'm one of you. Let me be that person. So they agree. The Bible tells us that he went out and he hired a group of worthless scoundrels, the Bible says. And here's what takes place in chapter 9, verses 5 through 6. Now watch this. It says, He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone he murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubal, or Gideon. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar of Shechem to crown Abimelech king. So they crown him king. Jotham, the youngest, has escaped. Now the story goes on, we're not going to look at all this, but he climbs up onto a mountain. And as they are anointing him king, Jotham, the youngest, is hollering down at him, pronouncing judgment on him. And one of the prophetic judgments that he, that he gives them is that Abimelech will kill you, Shechem, and Shechem, you're going to kill Abimelech. And then he runs off never to be heard from again. Now, as the story continues, we're going to jump through here a lot of passages. Just bear with me. Verses 22 through 24, it says this. After Abimelech had governed Israel for three years, 
God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jerubal's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem, who had helped him murder his brothers. Now, the story goes on, we're not covering all this, but there is utter chaos between them. They conspire to get rid of him because they don't like him after uh, three years, it says. And God has stirred their hearts, and this is important to note. God has stirred their hearts. He has placed it into their minds and their emotions and everything that they are to despise one another. And the story tells us that there is fighting. Thousands of people die in Shechem. And they are after Abimelech, and he has his little army, and he's fighting against them. And it goes on and on until finally we jump all the way down to verses 50 through 54 and listen to what happens. It says, Next Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. It's a city. It says, Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city had fled. They had locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it, but as he approached the entrance to the tower to set fire, to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly he came to the hurriedly he called to his armor bearer, "Draw your sword and kill me, so that they can't say a woman killed me." So the servant ran ran him through and he died. Now can you imagine this? The woman drops a big heavy stone down off the tower, and she's probably not aiming at him. She just tosses it over, hits him in the head, cracks his skull, and he's dying. But he doesn't want his legacy to be that he was killed by a woman. Now, this selfish ambition is still there, even to the point of death. So his servant kills him with a sword, and he dies. And then in verses 50 and 50, uh, 56 through 57, here's the end of the story. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. And the curse of Jotham, son of Jerubal, came on them. In other words, everything that the youngest son had pronounced or prophesied came true. He killed thousands of them and they ultimately killed him. Self-destruction. But the sad thing is this, that you see a perfect example of what selfish ambition does. Because to him, he was the only one that mattered. And to him, it did not matter who he ran over or who he killed in order to get his way. And the consequences, oh, they don't apply to me. I can do it. I can get by with it because I'm important. Man, this is just a perfect example of people today. And sadly to say, a perfect example of some Christians too. Because yes, even in the church and even in the pulpits, there's a lot of selfish ambition. A lot of people, clergy included, who do things and use people and run over people and not servants, but they're rulers. And it doesn't really matter because just like Abimelech, they think the same thing. I'm the most important. I'll use you and abuse you. And in the end, it doesn't matter because I'm above the consequences. And sadly to say, they found out differently. 
But let's move from the story, and let's talk about us, okay? Let's talk about the question is this. How do we, as believers today, how do we prevent this from happening to us? How do we guard ourselves against falling into this trap? Because every single one of us will be tempted with this. There will come a point in your life where you are going to be confronted with ambition. And that ambition, that wanting something that you don't have, wanting to be somebody that you're not, is going to drive you to do things that you never thought you would do. So how do we prevent ourselves from getting to that point? So I'm going to share with you very quickly three things. Three things that I want you to jot down. You can talk about tonight in your groups. And any other thoughts or comments or ideas you have, please be sure to bring them up in your groups tonight. But here is the first of those three suggestions on how to guard against selfish ambition. Here's number one. To guard against it, you're going to have to make an honest appraisal of your own faults. You're going to have to be honest about your own faults. Now, here's what I mean by that. Well, let me back up. Before I get to that, let me read you this verse. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Here's what Paul said. He says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now look at the verse, okay? He's saying, look, don't think of yourself more highly than you really ought to, but instead you need to look at yourself with sober judgment. Now, here's what that means, that you stand in front of the mirror, you take a good long look at the person in the mirror, and you acknowledge your faults. You see the things that aren't strengths. You see the weaknesses. You see the things that you struggle with. You see the sin. You're not trying to hide it, but you're coming clean with yourself, with other people, and with God. You see, as you look back at the Abimelech and and the people that we've just talked about in the news this past week, if you ask those people, hey, tell me your weaknesses, tell me your problems, tell me where you struggle, don't have any. Don't have any. Because you see, this is a characteristic of someone who's sliding into selfish ambition. I'm not going to tell you who I am. I'm not going to let you see who I am. And one of the things that you and I can do to keep this from happening is that we come clean with ourselves and with God is to, hey, look, yeah, I'm not very good at that. That's not one of my strengths. Yeah, I struggle with this. That temptation gets to me. That's who I am. That's the kind of human being that I am. Trying to change, but I've got to be honest. I struggle. You see, we're all weak. doesn't matter who we are. We're all afraid. We're afraid of what people will think of us if they found out who we really are. We're all insecure. And yes, we're all hiding out. I see it all the time. People in church, we sit there in those chairs Sunday after Sunday. You're not about to take a chance to do anything. You're not about to step out to try something because you know what? You just might fail. And in your heart, you already know you probably will. You just don't want anybody else to know it. So you're hiding. And it's the hiding, see, that's the problem. Because what eventually happens is this. Is that if we get the opportunity 
to rise, to become popular, to become well-liked, to become well-thought-of. If we have the opportunity to do that and to hide our faults, we're going to do it. And sometimes we're so obsessed with it that we will hurt other people along the way. We will use other people along the way. You see, selfish ambition is just our way of hiding our faults, hiding our weaknesses. You get any politician, you get anybody that that struggles with this, and you start trying to get them to talk about the things in their lives that they need to work on, the things that need to change, who they really are, you won't, no, we're not going to talk about that. Because I'm not going to let you see that person. And one of the best things that you and I can do is in a way of, of preventing ourselves from sliding off into this trap of selfish ambition is to just be honest, at least with ourselves, with God. And if you really want to get past it, be honest with other people about who you are. See, with old Abimelech, here's what I think happened. Abimelech was the son of a mistress. He wasn't a legitimate son. He had no legal rights to any of Gideon's inheritance. He was never to be considered as a son. And people, I'm sure, all of his life looked down on him, called him names, and laughed at him. And he was hell-bent on proving that he was not that man, that he was better than that, that he was somebody. And so in his effort to be somebody, he killed his whole family and thousands of innocent people in the process, all because of his own selfish ambition. And guys, you and I may not kill anybody in the process, but we run over people in an effort to prove that we are somebody. We're trying to prove our worth, you see. We're trying to prove our value. And when we are determined to do that, then everything else shows up. Like the Bible said, every other evil practice shows up. And the thing that I want you to see is that at least one step in curbing that or preventing it from happening is to be in a state of confession. Confession to God and confession to yourself to recognize what you're doing wrong. And like I said earlier, if you have a person that you trust to be able to be honest with that person and talk about and pray for each other, that these are the things in my life that I'm ashamed of. Things I don't want anybody else to know. And I'm not happy with them, I'm not proud of them, and they need to change, and I want you to join me and pray with me to help me do that. But if you start hiding, you're going to look for ways to make yourself look good to the people you're hiding from. And see, it's that secrecy that drives you to this. So the first step is an honest appraisal of who you are, your own faults. Now here's the second step, and you've heard this one before, but I'll explain it to you here. You need to have a clear understanding of who you are in Christ. Now guys, this is like a broken record. I mean, I know that I've shared this with you on numerous occasions in different sermons, and I will keep sharing it with you because your eyes are glassed over, and it's like it's not registering. And until it registers, you're not getting it, and you're going to struggle. The key to the Christian life is simply this. Everything stems on the, hangs on this. Understanding who you are in Christ. 
Not who you are in life. That's the person we just talked about. You need to recognize that and be honest about that. But at the same time, now I've got to understand, oh, this is who I am now in Christ as a believer, as a Christian. So important that you understand that. As long as I stay over here in my understanding, and the only person that I really see or recognize is the old person here, the old Dave, yeah, I'm not real happy with him. I don't like him. And I'll do everything I can to cover that up and to hide it from people, even if it means hurting and lying to you. But when I finally fess up and realize, as a Christian, this is who God says I am, then everything changes. And there are too many Christians who don't live with this knowledge or the full appreciation of it. They're still living in a world that is revolving around them. You see, in Christ we have value, no matter who we are. Now this is key. You see your faults, you understand, you just don't want to bring it out and look at it, but you understand in the depths of your soul who you are and what you're like. But in Christ, I'm somebody. In Christ, I don't have to prove anything. In Christ, I'm special. In Christ, I'm loved. In Christ, I'm forgiven and accepted no matter what I've done. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. I'm somebody. And I'm somebody in Christ, not because of something I've done, but because He said I am. And that's the key. He said it. You've been declared somebody. By faith in Christ, God said, you are the son of Almighty God. Or the daughter. But you're special. I don't want you to have to prove anything. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. You just have to acknowledge and know who you are. It makes all the difference in the world. If I don't understand that, I will struggle with selfish ambition. If I don't understand that, I will always struggle with trying to be somebody in this world. And God said, you don't have to. You're somebody in the next world. And that's all that matters. So I don't have to step on anybody. I don't have to try to prove my worth or my value. I have nothing to prove and neither do you. But you've got to understand that. Or you'll live like a person that's out to prove something. And when you do that, you're going to get into trouble. Here's the third thing, very quickly. That is a commitment to show love to other people. This is what it's going to take if you are going to guard yourself against selfish ambition. You're going to have to have a commitment to show love to other people. You see, it all boils down to this. We have a choice. We can either be selfish or we can be a servant. That's the choice, really. It's black and white. I can choose to try to be selfish and make myself look good in this world, or I can surrender to the Lord and I can become a servant. And God lifts me up. See, there's the difference. Let me read you this verse one more time. And this time I want to explain it a little more in depth, okay? Philippians 2, 3. Now listen to this. 
Do, not, uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Now, let's look at it a moment. I'm not to do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Basically the same thing. Notice the conceit is qualified, okay? In other words, he describes it. You're conceited, you think you're special, you think you're something in this world, and it's all vanity. It's vain. You're lying to yourself. He said, don't live that way. He said, but rather do this, in humility. Now there's the qualifier for this one. When I realize who I am and I come before the Lord and I'm humble before Him because I have nothing to offer, I'm not anybody in this world, but He says I am when I humble myself before Him. And then God says, in humility, you value others above yourself. You stop looking at what you need to make yourself look good and start looking at other people and say, what can I do to help them look good? So how do I help them? How do I encourage them? How do I show love for them? That's what the Christian's supposed to start doing. This is what this verse is telling us, that I'm to show value in other people. See, God called you and me to serve people. That's the complete opposite. See, it's not enough just to say, okay, I'm not, I, I'm not going to be a selfishly ambitious person. But that's only half of it. Because God says, that's okay, I appreciate that, now go serve somebody. Nothing will get your eyes off of yourself faster and prevent you from falling into the trap of selfish ambition faster than being committed to no matter how you feel, no matter what you want, no matter what your needs are, that you make a commitment that I'm going to start looking at other people and saying, how can I help them? How can I help them to grow spiritually? How can I help them by visiting when they're sick or providing food for them when they're hungry? Make a phone call when they're in need or need somebody just to pray for them or uplift them. To pay a bill when it's needed or take them to the doctor or run an errand for them or clean their house, watch their kids. How can I help you? You cannot be a selfish, ambitious person when you're helping somebody. The two just won't work together. So you make the commitment because it's the right thing to do because God has told you to do this. That yeah, I'm going to help. I'm going to serve. And selfish ambition won't be a problem in your life. It just won't be. But the thing that we don't understand as Christians is that God tells us to do this. See, you something that you do. And you've got to start looking for ways. There are needs in the congregation. There are needs in the community. There are things that God would have you to do. And when God lays those things on your heart, you need to step forward and you need to serve. You need to step out in faith and say, okay, God, here I am. I'm surrendered to you. I'm your servant. And I'm going to feed and love your sheep the way you told me to. And so in this particular situation with this particular person, what do I do? And you step out and you do it. You don't sit back and say, boy, I wish I could. You just do it. You just do it. Loving other people is the best way to overcome selfish ambition. So what do we... Wrap this up real quick. What do we got here? How do I prevent this from happening? How do I overcome it? There are three things. Here they are. Honest appraisal of your own faults. You're just honest with yourself and other people. 
You have a clear understanding of who you are in Christ. You've got to have it. And you've got to be committed to show love to other people. If you can do these things, you will never, ever struggle with selfish ambition. You just can't. God wants you and me to be that kind of people. Because you know what happens with the other kind of people. Every evil practice just follows the person that is selfishly ambitious. Don't be that person. You don't have to wait for something to happen. You don't have to wait for God to zap you. He's already given you everything you need to do it. All he's waiting for is for you to believe it and to step out and serve. And that's what I want us to do. Let's be that kind of people. Let's be that kind of church. If you're here this morning and you've never understood the gospel of Christ, let me read you this verse. It's in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, and very quickly it just says this. He, talking about God, He saved us not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God saved you. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God cleans you. You're clean forever. It's the new birth, the Bible says. And He plants within your soul, within your body, the Spirit of God. He lives there forever to give you the strength, the power to live for Him. Folks, this is what salvation is. This is what the gospel is, that Jesus died on a cross. Payment for your sin, everything you've ever done or ever will do was on the cross laid upon him and he died for it. He took your pain, your suffering. If you're here this morning and you don't know for sure that if you were to die today, you'd be with him in heaven, then please, uh, um, you know, let's solve this problem today, this question. Answer it. It's that simple. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. If you're here this morning and struggling with this and don't understand, then right now, right where you sit, Just humbly bow before God and say, Lord, here I am. I'm a sinner. And I know that my life has shamed you. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross like the Bible says. I believe that he was resurrected like the Bible says. And I believe he paid for my sins like the Bible says. And Lord, right here today, I trust you. I put my faith in you to save me. I humbly bow before you in faith. And I believe. Thank you, Father, for loving me that much. The Bible says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's you, regardless of who you are. You are now a child of God. As you leave this place today, make a commitment to act like a child of God. Make a commitment to never become someone who struggles or gives in to selfish ambition, someone who hurts other people. But because of who you are, live differently. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you this morning, 